everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and contrary to what I suggested at the end of my previous episode, uh, this week I'm going to be covering Lost Caverns of Ixalan for the last time. My last episode, I mentioned that I would probably cover Ravnica Remastered. I expected that it would come out on Magic Online uh, at the same time as its paper release. That's not the case. It actually comes out on Magic Online today. And uh, the weather here was not very cooperative to attending paper magic events. So I have not had a chance to play the set, and so I don't really have anything to say about it. And I also, since then, realized that there is an arena open this week that will be using Lost Caverns of Ixalan. And so I thought people might want uh, a refresher if they haven't played the format for a while, or just kind of some general closing thoughts on the state of the format. I also think that uh, for like archival purposes, it's good to have an episode like this uh, for sets where possible. So this is going to be kind of an overview of the set, touching on kind of just how the set functions as a whole rather than any particular archetype. So let's get into it. Uh, as always, the notes are available at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. So while no set is perfectly balanced color-wise, uh, once you you know actually like play it and get into the data, there are always going to be some archetypes that perform better than others, some that are more uh, popular to draft than others. Um, but I would argue that this set is actually relatively well balanced um, in terms of like strength of colors, strengths of archetypes. Um, there was no color that I felt personally like I really wanted to avoid at any point in the format. I think that there are players who would avoid black or green or maybe even red, depending on uh, what their preferences and experiences were. I found that when those colors were being avoided, there's a lot of value uh, to be had in playing them. And uh, as far as like data goes, like on 17 lands among two color pairs, the range of win rates from the least winning to most winning was 52.7 to 57.9, which uh, for people who don't obsess over 17 lands data, is unusually narrow. Usually, like, in color imbalance sets, um, the least winning can uh, end up below 50%, and the most winning can end up above 60 or near 60. Also, for people who aren't very accustomed to 17 lands, the reason that the uh, that 50% is bad, which is unusual, is both that uh, two-color decks usually do better than decks that are more than two colors and more importantly this is averaging win rates from 17 lands users um, so the average win rate uh, in the data set is usually around 55 percent so 50 55 you can basically subtract five percent from every percentage to get uh, to like it's more real percent that's not perfect but it's pretty close so anyway Despite um, the similar win rates, I will note that there were some archetypes that were drafted radically more and radically less than others. Blue-white, for example, was very popular, while blue-green uh, as a two-color deck was very, very rarely drafted. So basically, um, all of this matches my experience. I wasn't trying to avoid any particular colors, but I would try not to play certain colors with certain other colors. But it was less that I felt like I needed to actively avoid it and more that there was nothing that tempted me to do it. 
Like, usually the strong cards that I would start with in one color would have some kind of synergy that was looking for some sort of thing that I knew a certain other color wouldn't support, and so I wouldn't see anything in that other color that made it seem like I should go into that color. Um, like, it wasn't like I felt like, oh, if I accidentally start taking good white cards and good green cards, then my deck will have this problem. Like, in the very, very, very distant past, like in Onslaught Block Limited, you might see good green cards and good white cards and go into green-white, and then have a deck that couldn't win because those sets didn't have removal and those colors rather didn't have removal and there were utility creatures that you had to be able to answer or you would just lose. There's not something going on like that in this set where like you can take good cards and end up with an unplayable deck because you combined the wrong colors. It's more that if you take a white card, the white card will often want you to take artifacts and then there won't be any green artifacts that you want. And so you just it'll never occur to you to take those cards together. So f fewer traps and more just places where there wasn't really an incentive. From a design standpoint, I think that there were specific themes that were built into the set that worked better or worse than others. Um, some that like really didn't come together and some that came together in a big way. I think that most of the artifact stuff uh, crafting and kind of the other artifact, like the pirate artifact synergies, like Captain Storm specifically, uh, were very heavily supported. While like the red black descend, if you descended this turn, and the green white, if your creature is larger than its base power thing, really didn't show up. So it's kind of the big picture stuff, but I want to talk more about kind of the dynamics of the. Uh, the format and the gameplay, if that's the best way to discuss what I'm getting at as a group. Uh, you can determine for yourself whether that is a good description once I get into what I'm talking about. So there are some sets where after drafting it for a while, I feel like I just want as much removal as possible and all the best commons are all the best efficient removal spells. Uh, Wilds of Eldraine comes to mind as being uh, pretty close to that end of things. You know, I really wanted all the Torch of the Towers and Candy Grapples uh, and stuff like that that I could find. Lost Caverns of Ixalan is not that kind of set for me, or according to the data. Among the top 10 performing commons, only one of them is a removal spell, which is really unusual. There are a lot of reasons for this, and I think that like unpacking those reasons really tells you everything that you need to know about kind of the general context of this set. I don't know if that's like where the causality is there. I think that it's just very linked. Like the the structure of the set needs to be a certain way for the removal to not be that great. And if you understand the structure that makes the removal not that great, you kind of understand the whole structure of what's happening in the set. So first, uh, between craft abilities and discover caves, it's very rare to run out of stuff to do with your mana. Because it's rare to run out of stuff to do with your mana, cheap spells are at a premium. Uh, that should be a good sign. Like, that should make cheap removal better. But it also makes cheap creatures better. And if people are mostly trying to play all of the cheap creatures, then you're less likely to trade up on mana with a removal spell. So an abundance of cheap creatures is relatively bad for spot removal. Second, 
there are different classes of removal spells. There are cheap removal spells that uh, don't really answer everything or don't fully answer things, um, like Petrify. And then there are expensive removal spells that do answer things but cost a lot of mana, like Ray of costing five mana and letting you scry one to exile a creature vehicle or non-basic land. And each of those classes of removal spells has a bad matchup, basically. Um, if you have a lot of Deadweight and a Braid and Sunfire Torch type removal, you're going to have problems with expensive craft things and dinosaurs that are just like a lot bigger than your removal can handle. If, on the other hand, you have, you know, Petrify and Ray and Quicksand Whirlpool, you're going to struggle with Captain Storm in particular, but also just kind of like Pirate Aggro and various Go Wide decks and 1-1 Flyers for one and stuff like that. There's just a much larger potential mismatch for your removal spells than I think there is for uh, creatures. Um, the very classic, there are no wrong threats, only wrong answers uh, applies here. Third, descend, counting permanence in your graveyard, punishes putting instants and sorceries into your deck. And a lot of the decks that would want removal care about descent. This is kind of a narrow consideration, but it goes a little bit wider than it seems like because even the decks that don't specifically care about Descend, like Blue-White uh, cares about artifacts in Graveyard to craft, and so your instants and sorceries are kind of like eating into your possible like artifact synergy spots also. There, I'm going to talk more about the synergies that exist in this set and their role, but basically there are not a lot of like instant and sorcery synergies like there aren't any there's no like magecraft type stuff nothing that you know there are a variety of kinds of things that mechanics that could exist or do exist in other sets that reward you for putting instants and sorceries in your deck in some way and there's none of that there's not a spells archetype in any sense in this set and so there are a lot of pressures to play card types that are not instants and sorceries that minimize the value of those instant and sorcery removal spells fourth a lot of the uh, creatures generate value when they enter the battlefield or when they're killed. So even if you do manage to find a decent exchange on mana with your removal spell, you're often down some amount of value because your opponent got an explore or a discover or um, a tap and make a stun counter or a treasure or to look at the top end cards of their deck where N is the number of caves they control and put two of them in your into their hand or something like that. Uh, and so because there's, or Mill 2, Mill 2 is another one that comes up. There are just a lot of different abilities on creatures and then you like answer those creatures, but your opponent generated something and you didn't. Um, and so it's easy for removal to trade down in a lot of different ways and hard for removal to trade up without there being some kind of trade-off. You know, like you might trade up on mana, but down in ETB, or maybe, you know, you're not down in ETB, but you're also not up on mana, um, something like that. So removal is hard to fit in a deck, hard to line up properly, and hard to trade at parity or positively with a lot of the time. And 
The same pressures that generally make people not play a lot of instants and sorceries also make people not play a ton of combat tricks. And so you're less likely to be able to like use an instant speed removal spell to blow out like a spot where your opponent tried to use a combat trick. Um, so that's like another opportunity where removal spells would sometimes generate a two for one that doesn't happen here. Similarly, there aren't a lot of like auras being played and stuff like that. So overall, it's not the best set for removal. That's not to say that you shouldn't put on your removal spells in your deck. But it is to say that you probably want to prioritize it less highly than most people prioritize it. What I mean by that is if you look at like the 17 lands data by win rate and then separately, like if you look at commons sorted by win rate and then you look at commons sorted by how early they're taken by drafters and aggregate, you'll see that the cards that are in the top 10 most drafted that are not in the top 10 most winning are mostly removal spells. Um, so people are still drafting removal highly, even though removal isn't performing exceptionally. Uh, a braid is not a common with a win rate in the top 10 commons, but it is the most highly drafted common by an appreciable amount. So some of those cards are overrated, so that's something to be aware of. Also, while I think that you do want to take removal rather than not taking removal, like at some point in the draft... I do think that you want to not play a ton of removal and specifically to be careful playing too many of a single kind of removal spell. So you might want, you know, one or two deadweight abrade cheap removal type things, one or two ray whirlpool boulder, you know, that that kind of more expensive removal. So, yeah, you want to just kind of like hedge your removal exposure and um then just use your removal more judiciously in the games. And uh, yeah, that, that's most of what I have to say about removal situation. Because removal is weak, how creatures line up against each other just matters a lot. When you play a creature, it's more likely to be in play. More decks are more likely to be more creature dense. And so keywords are important. Death touch is very high impact. And like how death touch, like how your creatures line up against your opponent's creatures is just a big deal. Like if you're someone who has a 1-1 death touch creature and your opponent has big ground creatures, that's meaning, meaningfully good for you. If you're someone who has flyers and your opponent has 1-1 death touch creatures or other creatures that are generally trying to block but can't block your flyers, that's meaningfully good for you. If you know, your cre like if your creatures are just like incremental, like a little bit bigger than your opponent's creatures, all of that stuff matters. So as far as just like, you know, I know this set gets some criticism, but one thing that I think is pretty neat about this set is that like the exact trade-offs and details of your creatures is just like pretty impactful because there's a little bit uh, less removal and the removal is a little bit less efficient. Just all of the how does this creature line up against that creature stuff matters. I think that's part of why Panic Deltasaur overperforms. Panic Deltasaur is a card that doesn't line up well against removal. That's the uh, five mana four five that um, has reach and can tap to do damage to your opponent. That's you know I mentioned that most card most creatures are giving you some kind of immediate value if they cost that much mana. Panic Deltasaur doesn't. So if your opponent can kill it with a removal spell that costs less mana than it, uh, you're down on that exchange. 
But since a lot of the time that's not what's going to happen and what matters is how creatures line up against each other, Panicked Altasaur has reach and it's a lot bigger than the flying creatures in the set, so it blocks them really well. And then uh, its ability to do damage without needing to attack and while being able to block means that it really lends itself to like generating a board stall and then winning in that kind of game. I think in general, uh, like the fact that most of the flyers in this set are pretty small and most of the reach creatures are bigger than, about, than almost, almost all the flyers, um, combined with the fact that there's really no mechanic in this set, well, there's no mechanic that makes blocking particularly difficult. There's nothing like landfall or exert or uh, exalted, something that makes creatures attack better than they defend. The closest that we have to punishing defense is if you descended this turn, which again ends up being one of the weakest, like the cards that say that generally aren't very good. That ability does sort of punish blocking just in that if you trade, you'd rather do it on your turn than your opponent's turn. But again, it's so low impact. For the most part, this set allows blocking. Blocking is effective and common and like it works which is why despite lack of removal i think that uh you know it's totally reasonable to play a defensive controlling deck that's trying to play to a later game because you just value creatures that like block well and get you that later game and then you can play there so i mentioned i would come back to discussing synergies in the set i think that each of the synergies that exist is relatively low stakes by itself. You know, cards like Sahili's Lattice, the uh, artifact that draws two, discard one, and then can craft with a dinosaur, doesn't need you to have a ton of dinosaurs. You can actually craft with multiple dinosaurs, but the point is, it doesn't need you to have a ton of dinosaurs. It doesn't scale. It doesn't get all that much better in a deck with more dinosaurs. You know, if you have one dinosaur in your deck, it's better than if you have zero. If you have two, it's a little better than if you have one, etc. But there's no number that's like necessary where the card's unplayable without it and good with it. And every extra one is like very, very, very marginally better than, you know, not having it. Uh, similar with like the kin color, the three mana, three, three that gains life if you have another dinosaur. Pretty low stakes, you know, whether that happens or how frequently it happens. And certainly having more than one extra dinosaur doesn't help you at all. And then, you know, the, all, all of the craft stuff, right? Like, like the cards that craft with an artifact are a little bit better if you have a few more artifacts. But by itself, you know, having a single iceberg in your deck doesn't make you suddenly start taking artifacts over all non-artifacts or something like that. Craft with creatures like Tithing Blade, you know it's a little bit better if you have some self-mill or if your creatures trade or if you have more creatures in your deck, but it doesn't radically transform anything. But there are a lot of these cards that care about the card types of the other cards in your deck in some way. They might care about a type or a subtype, and all of it's pretty small, but then collectively it ends up significantly informing what you're looking for. So many of the, you know, if you have a little bit of craft with an artifact, you're going to look for more artifacts. And then some of those artifacts are going to have craft with artifacts or other artifact synergies. Maybe you'll find like the Sire, Oaken Siren that taps for mana that can only be used for artifacts. And you'll think, okay, now I'd like to have a few more artifacts in play so that it's more likely that I can use this Siren mana. 
one thing leads to another and you have a deck with 15 artifacts in it. But at the same time, you know, it's also fine to play Siren in a deck with four artifacts and just be reasonably happy with your 1-2 Vigilance Flyer that sometimes makes a mana. So I think that's pretty cool um, in terms of like how kind of like opt-in the synergies are, but they're also still impactful enough that I think that they meaningfully impact your card evaluation and like which commons you are going to want in any given deck is going to change a lot depending on which kinds of synergies you're trying to support and which types of cards your deck is asking for. So again, that's just a thing that I like about this set. I, I think that the drafting is fun and dynamic in a way where both like your pick orders change depending on what your deck is, but where the synergies are kind of low stakes and fluid enough that you can still pivot out of one space into another space. It's not like, you know, there are some sets where you have goblins that are looking for more goblins. And once you're like four goblins deep, you can't pivot into like the red beasts deck instead of the red goblins deck because you really need to pursue your goblin synergies. And so you're not only stuck in this color, you're stuck in this, stuck in this narrow lane within this color. I don't feel like that's happening. I think that in this set, you know, you can have a red deck that's supporting both dinosaurs and artifacts in a meaningful way. Or you can easily shift from one to another because neither one requires that much support for it to come through. In best of three, I value removal spells in a draft more highly, like in the drafting portion, more highly than I do in best of one for the reason that I mentioned uh, that removal can line up poorly against certain uh, kinds of creatures or kinds of decks. But I do really want to have the right kind of removal spells for the matchup in my deck after sideboarding. So um, cards like Over the Edge and Ray of Ruin that are kind of more obvious sideboard cards are really good to have access to. But then also cards like Deadweight and Sunfire Torch and Abraid Regardless of whether I'm going to start those cards in my main deck or my sideboard, the uh, risk of having them in my deck in bad matchups uh, is minimized because if I do play the main, I can still side them out against people where I see that uh, the creatures that I care about killing aren't going to die to the removal spells that I have. And so I can side those out for different removal spells or just for creatures or something if I think that it's just not worth the card uh, based on what I'm playing against something to be thinking about in best of three, for example, in day two of the open this weekend. The last thing that I want to really, really stress that I mentioned earlier, but I think uh, is kind of like more true than uh, you might realize is the importance of cheap cards. Uh, I talked about how cheap cards are good because you don't really run out of stuff to do with your mana. Um, but like how extremely cheap uh, your like decks should be is easy to miss and I would say that the way that I tend to draft I probably typically play more expensive spells than the average successful drafter does so if you have been uh, learning this set from following my draft specifically you might be a little more willing to take expensive cards than you should be Looking at decks that uh, tro just looking at any decks that trophied going uh, through the like recent trophy decks on seventeen lands, I noticed that most of them had like four 
total cards that cost more than three mana. So like two four drops, a five drop, and a six drop, or something like that. There might be some exceptions where you could play like a couple more like land cycling dinosaurs that might not really like count toward that. But um, again and again, I was seeing decks that really like only had four or fewer uh, cards that cost more than three. Um, Red green was something of an exception to that. Uh, dinosaurs where you can, you know, play frogs and then some defensive stuff and you want like big dinosaurs because you're kind of trying to play that game could maybe go up to like six expensive cards. But four seemed like a good number to be targeting. And I did see a deck that um, looked really good that had literally a single three drop and a single four drop and everything else cost one or two. Um, and that's the other thing about these decks that don't have anything that only have, you know, four cards that cost more than three. They usually only have like five or six cards that cost three. And then the entire rest of the deck is one and two with like a good mix of ones and twos. Like people are succeeding with decks that have, you know, five to eight one drops um, in addition to just, as you know, enormous numbers of two drops. So... It is certainly true that blue-red has the lowest curves, but just in general, I think that when in doubt, highly penalize cards that cost more than three and try to play as many ones and twos as you can is a very good baseline approach to the format. Casting multiple spells and uh, using all of your mana early is really, really good in a way that I think fits into kind of everything I was talking about. You get more synergies and you have like more objects that are like doing those synergies. You get to, you know, double spell and then still have stuff to do with your mana late. Um, it, it, it just works out. So be really, really, really careful with your expensive spells in this format is kind of my like single most important piece of advice that I would give people at this stage in the format. And that covers it. So this is a very broad topic. So I'm gonna turn it over to chat for, I guess, really just any questions you have about uh, LCI, Lost Caverns of Ixalan as a format. While people are thinking of those, want to, as always, both thank my newest patrons. Thank you very much, Nick and Morsov. Uh, really appreciate the support. And for anyone else who's interested in uh, supporting my work and the podcast. Uh, you know, this is really kind of my full-time deal, so I really appreciate it. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes to see if the offerings and such uh, look good to you. On the topic of removal, Unlucky Drop has an unusually high win rate for how clunky it looks. Do I have any idea why this would be? Unlucky Drop might look clunky in this format where you know everything's cheap and i'm saying you don't want to play a lot of four mana spells and stuff but it is a class of card that typically performs pretty well like it's very common to have you know a million different cards have been printed that have basically unlucky drops text um it's like you know the number of copies of that card that you can play in commander is very high and i think that in general that card is pretty good i think it like its numbers might look surprisingly high in this set, but I think they're lower than the comparable card in most sets numbers. Um, the reason why that kind of card is good 
it's instant speed, hard removal. Like it answers anything at any time. And it plays pretty well in like blue tempo decks and blue tempo decks are pretty good in this format. So again, I don't think you want a lot of them. And I think that if you're in the like a more controlling deck, I would be more skeptical of it. Although, you know, I still want to have like one of that kind of card that can, you know, like potentially answer at least temporarily whatever I need to answer. But yeah, I, I mean, basically it's a strong effect just in magic that isn't optimally positioned in this set, although it's structurally kind of well positioned just because it's a card that's best in blue tempo decks and blue is existing in a tempo space in this set more often than it does in a lot of sets. Also, like, removing to deck instead of to graveyard is kind of nice in this set where people are punishing you for removing their stuff to their graveyard, uh, both in terms of adding to descend count, like it doesn't increase their descend count, and in terms of, um, you know, not running into, like, uh, another chance and stuff. What is my favorite common? Uh, I'm just going to say join the dead, but I'm not sure. Not join the dead. Another chance, but I'm not particularly confident that's true but i'm i'm trying to stick to things that are more useful to improving other people's uh success in the format kind of rather than just like talking about my own enjoyment preferences i've surprisingly done pretty well with blue green no real synergy just the good blue cards and good green cards do i think blue green's win rate is skewed from people trying to stick to the explorer theme yes uh i do think that um you know anytime a color combination has like uh, stated theme and that stated theme is, isn't really supported that people try a little bit too hard to make it happen when they can't um, so there's going to be a little bit of that I mostly think that blue green's just like existing in a very very small sample size it's drafted so much less than the other decks uh, that um, I wouldn't just I, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in the win rates there just because it, the sample sizes are relatively low and if it's working for you, I would just assume that you found something that's like reasonably good and stick with it. How aggressive or fast is the format considering the high count of one and two drops? So how fast is the format is a thing that has been measured and you can look up on 17 lands that I haven't and don't. I mean, it's not a question that's very meaningful to me because it's something that you can influence a lot in your games. And so I feel like when I'm playing, I have the ability to make games faster or slower to a significant degree. And uh, I just want to like draft with a plan to make sure that the game is the kind of length that I want it to be. So like, I think that it's probably pretty fast in most experience because like the most played decks are mostly trying to make it fast. But um, it's definitely not the kind of set that's like deterministically fast, which I think is important. And then considering the high count of one and two drops, like the having a lot of one and twos lets you curve out and go fast. But your opponent like also has one and twos and like the one and twos can mostly be blocked and answered and stuff in a way that like people do that stuff, but it doesn't end the game there. Right. Like 
constructed has a million one and two drops, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every game ends on turn five. Did I mention how very little uh, reach, like fireballs and active trees and stuff, exists in the format? Um, yeah, there's not a ton of ways to like steal a game from someone who's trying to stabilize. Panicked Altasaur is among the best of that, which again is part of why I think that like control is particularly viable, even in this format where you know removal is not necessarily that great and stuff. Um, like it kind of goes along with what I was saying about the way that creatures lines up just like makes blocking possible. The fact that there aren't mechanics that stop blocking. And then similarly, there aren't mechanics that just like kill someone who's trying to block. Staggering size is maybe like the best of that kind of thing in terms of just like pushing damage and killing someone who's trying to like stabilize. Um, and even that I think is like, you know, often ends up in sideboards because there aren't that many decks, like green decks that are trying to attack in that way. Would opening bombs in non-meta color pairs, such as Deep Fathom Echo in pack one, pick one, versus something strong like Spyglass Siren or Deep Cavern Bat or Lurking Bat affect my decision uh, going into a non-meta pair, such as blue-green? Um, so basically, if you open a rare that you believe is better than a and uncommon in the pack, but the rare is colors that you don't necessarily want to be. How likely are you to not take the rare because you don't want to be in those colors? I personally am very open to splashing a card like Deep Fathom Echo. I believe that that's the uh, blue-green 4-4 that uh, explores every turn. I wouldn't necessarily take it over uh, Deep Cavern Bat, but the fact that it requires blue and green mana isn't like a strong strike against it for me. I think that like blue green as a two color deck isn't drafted very much, not because you shouldn't put blue and green cards in your deck, but because you're more likely to have a third color in those decks. And I'm very comfortable operating in that space. Anytime, you know, there, there's always some kind of trade off to taking a gold card over a monocolor card, pack one, pick one, but, uh, in this format, because I think that it's not that hard to splash if you want to, and because uh, I don't really mind any, like I'm not, there aren't really colors I'm trying to avoid. I don't personally go super far out of my way to avoid taking splashable gold cards. I do uh, go out of my way to avoid taking like two mana gold cards, especially if they're an archetype that I don't really want to be like i underdraft captain storm because it's such a big commitment but uh i think that there are a lot of valid approaches to that question is a person historically low on pacifism type effects that's talking about me i'm one of those um how do i feel about petrify in this set and why is it better or worse than pacifism is in the average set so petrify is the best performing removal spell in this set uh the reason for that is that it is a better pacifism than pacifism. Um, it costs two mana and it, it's a rest for one less mana. It uh, stops attacking, blocking, and activated abilities. So it's a relatively good version of that effect. And all of the removal spells have meaningful things that they don't answer. Um, you know, like a braid is very versatile, but there are just a lot of creatures that matter and have four or more toughness. Uh, and also, like I was saying, Answering something with a permanent, meaning that if you like mill the petrify, it is a card for your descend, 
And when you answer something with petrify, it doesn't go to the graveyard. So it's a good answer to gods. It's a good answer against people who care about uh, getting things back from their graveyard or things being in their graveyard. So it's it makes sense that it's relative, like you know, relatively uh, strong in the context of the format um, for that kind of effect. Uh, there are also not like good. Like the bounce spell that exists, Brackish Blunder, uh, generates value when it bounces a tapped creature. Your petrified creature is not usually going to be tapped, so your like bounce spell to save it isn't going to generate value compared to um, something like the um, Geist Wave that like draws a card if it bounces your own thing that generates meaningful value if you're like saving your own creature from a pacifism, and like the uh, you know oh but this is an object that they can use. Like in this set, you know, part of why removal is bad is when you kill a thing, you're giving your opponent an object that they can use for craft or something like that. So the object in the in play, like an object that is in play is a comparable, like a pacified creature is a comparable amount of value to a dead creature. So it's more similar to removal in that way. I'm still like lowish on petrify because it's still sorcery speed and it's still like doesn't interact favorably if you have a card like Tithing Blade in your deck, but it's certainly, you know, a good format for that card. Are there any interesting combos I've yet to try out in this set? Well, the real answer is probably, and I haven't tried, like, but I might not know them. That's why I haven't tried them. But I, I guess the one that comes to mind is basically just uh, the cash whatever it's called the uncommon that comes with two plus one plus one counters with anything that it works with you know creatures that have explore having another copy of it or whatever uh i haven't played with that card i think i will also say i recently lost to someone who was playing the um it was a green white deck that was splashing two of the uncommon blue two four that gets plus one zero and unblockable when you explore and then playing the uh one mana one one that explores for three mana that was an effective combination um their deck didn't was a little bit low on evasion but uh you know able to like generate a board stall and making uh you know having two creatures that they could like explore twice and attack for eight unblockable is a good way to end a game. So that, that's a combo that I have not personally played. Um, I imagine there's a decent number of things like that. Very little talk in the wrap up of caves. Is that just because I've made my position on caves well known already? Yeah, I don't think I have anything to add on the topic of caves. Um, I still like drafting them the same way that I've talked about, and I still don't think that they, I mean, I think that they impact the format in the way that I've discussed in terms of like having something to do with your mana late, but I think that most players mostly don't draft dedicated cave decks, and so they don't like have a large impact on like what's happening in the format on a meta level. Is there a card I have drafted too much because it fits my playstyle, or... Um, I liked how it played out, not because it was strong. I guess if it fit my playstyle and I liked how it would play, how it played out, I'm not sure how I would know that I've drafted it too much. Like, too much indicates that it's been a problem, and it's hard to know 
what would have happened if I'd been drafting it less? So yeah, I mean, like, Hoverstone Pilgrim is a card that I've drafted much more than other people because I like how it plays. Like, I like that kind of card in any format. I really enjoy that kind of play pattern. But then also when I play with it, I'm able to do the things that I want to do with it. And so it, like, works for me and I keep doing it. And so then, like, am I doing that not because it's strong? Well, I'm doing it because it has a kind of strength that I can play to. I'm not doing it because it wins a lot in aggregate, um, but I still think that it's a strong card. It's a card with the potential to impact a game in a unique and powerful way. I suspect that that's true of, you know, any of the, like, pet cards that I have. And there are certainly a lot of cards that I like in this set uh, more than their win rate would suggest or more than I know other people like them, cards that I take more highly than other people, cards that mill you for two, cards that are Hoverstone Pilgrim, uh, Caves. But again, it's it's hard for me to say that I've been drafting them too much because uh, they, they work for me. In terms of reading signals and giving signals, would I take a card that is not as strong as... Um, another card in the pack uh, to avoid a specific color, knowing that it will be a contested color. Has that not been happening in LCI? This is a concept that I used to pay more attention than I do to. In the distant past, I paid a lot more attention to signaling than I do in the present. I think partially in the distant past, there were fewer playable cards in drafts, and so it was more important to be in an open lane because if you weren't in an open lane, you're, you would just not have enough cards to make your deck work. Whereas now, the best cards are a lot better than all the other cards, but you're going to have plenty of cards that are not bad such that anytime I have an opportunity to take a card that's really good, I just want to take it, and I don't care what people around me are drafting because I'll still have enough playables to make it work, uh, and having the really good card is going to matter a lot. Also, it's easier to splash in modern sets than it was in sets 20 years ago, and so uh, that's another reason that I just care less. Like, if I get, if I take a strong card and I get cut on that color, I'll just draft a different color and splash the strong card. So I don't know, maybe I cared more about signaling at a time when it wasn't right to do that. Like maybe it was always not right to pay that much attention to signaling or maybe context is just different. But I would say that I worry very, very, very little about signaling in terms of like, oh, this pack has like four good black cards and only one gr good green card. So I'll take the green card and pass all the black cards. That stuff used to matter to me a lot, and I barely think about it these days. Did I ultimately decide what was the best strategy for Rakdos in this set? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel pretty good about the idea of drafting Rakdos with a mindset of drafting Orzov in Ravnica, where you're trying to play a control game that has, like, kind of passive, reliable ways to nickel and dime your opponent over time, like um, Panicked Altasaur and Flipped Tithing Blade and Zoyoa 
that are just kind of like doing damage that it's hard for your opponent to interact with while you generally play a defensive game. My biggest surprise from 17 lands win rates compared to my initial impression of the card, I'm going to say it has to be Atali's Favor. Atali's Favor is a card that does really, really well and um, is very easy to overlook. I think it's like a difficult card to evaluate uh, in terms of just like you really don't know what your output is and um, we don't have a lot of cards like it to compare it to. And it's a card that can kind of like fail if you don't have, like if you want to play it on three and you don't have a two drop or if you um, hit a card that's like not useful immediately, but does well because, you know, it's normal. Oh, also it's a card where you can get two for one, right? Like if your opponent has open mana and it's your play and you just cast it on a creature and your opponent kills the creature in response, uh, then you're in really bad shape. But, um, you know, the, the default play pattern where like you play a two drop, they play a two drop, you put favor on your two drop, you hit a two drop or a three drop. Now you have a really good attack with your two drop. That's like a three, three trampler into their two, two. Um, and you also like put something else in play, like, um, you know, it, it kind of upgrades your two drop into a three drop and then either also plays a three drop or plays a two drop. If it plays a two I mean, or a one, and it's not so good if it hits a one, but if it hits a two, which is like the average case, then, you know, you still played a two drop and a three drop on turns two and three, but you got to kind of play your three drop on turn two and your two drop on turn three, which is a little bit better. Like you're, you know, up a little bit of like extra damage there and stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, I think Italia's favor is kind of the big winner from the data. All right. I've kind of wound down again after uh, the last call. So I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much, everyone, for uh, tuning in and asking questions. I, uh, you know, as I've mentioned and alluded to, I've really enjoyed this set um, for its entire lifetime. This set was kind of out for a particularly long time in terms of there not being another draft set. And it's interesting that like a set that I know has uh, received mixed, mixed reviews from the community um, has really held up for me the whole way. Um, so uh, th this was a, a win in my book, at least. And um, I'm looking forward to the open this weekend. I don't know if I'm going to get to play enough on day one to make day two. I'm attending a cube tournament um, in Milwaukee on Saturday. Uh, this should be a lot of fun. And then I'll see if I also have time to uh, play enough um, sealed to uh, play on day two. So hopefully I do, but um, you know, paper magic comes first for me where possible. So good luck to everyone else playing in the open this week. And yeah, we're done with Lost Caverns. My expectation is that next week I'll talk about uh, Return to Ravnica finally. And after that, I think I'm hoping that we'll be ready to start getting into uh, Karlov. So that's it for me. Have a good week, everyone. And I'll see you next week. Bye.